Okay, here we go. Nice and quiet. Sound speeds, camera rolling. Holding for sound. Last looks. Calling for last looks. And set and action. I need to swap batteries. You know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome to Making Movies is Hard, the podcast about the everyday struggles of being an independent filmmaker. I am Liz Manischel. And I am Ulrich Brissell. This week, we welcome writer, director, producer, film festival programmer, exec director of Film North, director of programming for Provincetown Film Festival uh, to the show to talk about being amazing. Personally, you know, I, I was really tied up in the idea of success in my life would be directing a feature. And I really hope that happens, but I don't want, I've re- recently allowed myself to not be so tied to that as, as a goal that makes me a success or happy. It was tough. I mean, that was an emotional, I did, I had a life coach and we talked about things and I just bringing up the idea that it might not happen was, um, it was really hard. Andrew Peterson is amazing. I just, I, I really genuinely love him. I know I speak in hyperly all the time, but I love Andrew Peterson. Arik, did you feel the same way? I'm going to put you on the spot. Uh, no, I hated him. No, I loved him too. <laughs> he was great. <laughs> Andrew was really interesting because um, it was like really hard for me to understand exactly like what he did. And I uh, poorly, as a very bad podcaster, didn't do any research before the episode. So I just was like, you know, looking at, you know, his stuff as I was, we were talking and yeah, fascinating guy. Um, really cool story. Been doing it for a long time. And um, I didn't know that he was a crew person first um, until, uh, you know, we were talking to him. And I think that's a really interesting thing, too, that he started off in locations. And um, I really, really wanted to ask him about working on Jingle All the Way. And, you know, he said so many amazing things. <laughs> That there was no time for that and i bet the, there's there's chances that the story was good is like 50 50 so it's like <laughs> he, he said so many other great things that I, I had like i was like writing questions in our outline I as saw. he was talking because it was like he would say like like one really amazing thing and then he would keep going and then another really amazing thing would come up and then he'd keep going and, another, and it was like not necessarily always super connected but it was like all there and i just went, I was like okay i gotta like pick out this little thing to talk about because that was just really interesting no it's like yet another situation where we we could have had three hours with him <laughs> and we would have been filled to the brim with interesting things for him to say. he's he's so kind and lovely and smart and i um I'm going to say this, even though I probably shouldn't, he was the one that recommended I reach out to Ann Dowd for Speed of mm. Life. He read the script and gave me like a listing of casting suggestions. He, um, and then when I'm trying to remember either the film finished or something happened that was a landmark in the film and he sent me these David Bowie cards, like there's no reason for him to be so kind. And he's give, he gives so much to filmmakers. Um, I think he just gave a lot of wonderful things to everyone who's, who's going to listen to him. Um, in a few minutes. But before we get to Andrew's talk, um, I think I have mail, right? You have mail. Breath catches in my chest until I hear three little words. You got mail. This week, we have some YouTube comments that are old that we never really read. And so I wanted to read them. Um, do you want to take the first one? So uh, we interviewed Taylor Morton a few weeks ago who did the last blockbuster, but he also did that Back to the Future tribute film, right? And so Gary Kennedy three, the third of all Gary Kennedy's <laughs> wrote, my daughter and I did that duplicate scene in Strickland's office. Oh, that's right. He was talking about like how there was one scene that people did two versions of. 
right? Or yeah, two, yeah. two different filmmaking teams accidentally did one scene. So it was funny so that he, he like, picked up on that. But he put them both in, right? He like cut them in half and used half yeah. of each. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's amazing. And Gary Kennedy has also commented before, I believe, on YouTube. So thank you, Gary Kennedy, for continuing to comment. Amazing. Uh, we also got one from Nick Bell, who also has been talked about on the show because I think he was a pat- patron or is a patron, Patreon, patron, Patreon, patron. That's what you say. Anyways, Nick Bell three. Also the, th- oh no, that's not three. You know what? This is stupid. Oh, list. It's three weeks ago. <laughs> so he's three. not the third Gary Kennedy. He's, no, he's one not. Gary Kennedy. He's one Gary Kennedy that posted this three weeks ago. Um <laughs> So Nick Bell says, I like how the new thumbnails look. Good choice on the switch. Also, this was a great episode. So thank you, Nick. Appreciate it. And uh, thanks to Lucas Kolshaw for the amazing art for the thumbnails. Is that what he's talking about? Is he talking about the, the thumbnail, like our little logo? Or is he oh. talking about the style of thumbnails that I'm doing now, the new ones? I think the style of thumbnails. I mean, Lucas Kolshaw deserves all the credit all the oh, time right. but i think it just means because we used to yeah we had a different designer do thumbnails before and right. then you our, kind of our, uh, took on that work our overlords uh used to do it a certain way and i guess it was the way that they did all their other podcasts so they like just put us into the type the, you know the pipeline and then when they handed me all the assets they gave me the ability to do that but i was like god who needs this like god i don't have time for this i barely <laughs> have time to make one logo i'm not gonna make five different versions of the same logo like here you can have the same one that goes on the website and, and i like those better anyways personally because it's more in- interactive and just you know shows you some, some of the people better and in their well it doesn't necessarily show the person better but it shows their environment better because it's like them and like you know if they're on set usually hopefully that's like what it is so anyways nick thank you i'm glad that you think the same way that i do that's awesome we also have a new itunes review uh, should I read this one, Liz, or do you yeah, want to read it? Yeah, you read okay. it. You do it. So it, the title of this review is called A Great Resource for Finding Interesting Movies. And this is uh, written by Ellipscomb, um, which is a really cool username. Five stars. I discovered this podcast because of the Joe Bob Briggs episode. Amazing. I'm not a filmmaker, but I've always been interested in the process of movie making, and I'm a fan of watching independent films. The host of this show, Liz and Ulrich, do a great job with their interviews and keep the show interesting because of their insights and experience in filmmaking. As a result of this podcast, I've discovered many new shorts and features that I wouldn't have found without their podcast. Keep up the great work. Edwin. Thank you, Edwin. Oh, my God. Oh, Edwin. That is uh, awesome. really an amazing review. And it's also extremely awesome to hear that he's watching the short films we talk about. My goodness. That's great. People that's like the seem whole to point. Engage with us. Like I post the short films on Twitter, and people will like those short films and repost. Oh, nice. Like that was always very surprising to me because I'm so lazy that I'm like, oh, another thing to watch. But people, yeah, people are supporting this work. Cool. That's really cool. I mean, that's the whole point is like to like you know shine shine a light on these filmmakers whose work is maybe not getting as many views as they deserve. Although we've had had a, had a couple that did get a ton of attention, you know, but that's just because they were so interesting. We had to talk about them anyways. So uh, if you want to be like Edwin and write us an iTunes review or Gary Kennedy and Nick Bell and, you know, leave a comment on YouTube, you can do all those things. Um, for the comment part, you just go to YouTube follow our link in the bio of our uh, Instagram page and then you can get to YouTube. You can subscribe first and then you can go ahead and like things and comment on things, which would be a good idea. 
Um, also, if you want to be like Edwin, you can go to iTunes um, and, uh, you know, write us a review or give us a rating or whatever there. And then if you also just want to shout at us and tell us things like, gosh, Ulrich, why are you reading this all out of order backwards right now? <laughs> um, you can go to uh, your email, whatever you use, and type in podcast at makingmoviesishard.com. Okay, take two. You can go to your email, whatever you use, type it in and write podcast at makingmoviesishard.com and tell us things, whatever you want. Uh, make a suggestion for a topic, ask a question, um, give us your own personal uh, critique, good or bad of the show, whatever you want to do. Uh, and we may or may not read it on the show. I promise you, we'll read it on the show. We read everything that is sent to us on the show. <laughs> so also... We have a Patreon page. So if you really love the show and you want to support us, you can go over to www.patreon.com slash MMIH podcast and give us a dollar, $5 or $9. And Liz is reaching for the beautiful stickers that we have, I believe. I'm trying to find it. I have like can't find a pile them. of like snacks and like <laughs> checks I've deposited. Um, hold on. I've got it. I've got it. Okay. Here we go. Amazing. I, I thought to like find my pins wherever they are and like put them on my desk for this episode. And then I didn't do that. So instead you guys can see a cat. It's my cat, Michael. Hello. Hello cat. But, uh, but yeah, thanks to everyone who, you know, uh, interacts with us. We really appreciate it. And uh, you know, we're still not at our 200 subscribers on YouTube yet, but maybe we will be soon. We're at 185. We just need to like Facebook and tweet and Instagram about it more. Right. All right, Liz. But I think, uh, you have something to talk to about this week, right? Is it why I do get shorty, maybe? So you make movies, huh? I produce feature motion pictures. I got an idea for a movie. We have a short film to talk about, and it is called Why Haven't They Fixed These Cameras Yet? And it's written, directed by Travis White, produced by Madison Phillips. And here are Travis and Madison to talk about the film. Hey Liz, hey, hey Ulrich. I'm Travis White, the writer-director of Why Haven't They Fixed the Cameras Yet? I'm Madison, soon-to-be white producer of Why Haven't They Fixed the Cameras Yet? And we're massive fans of the show, Making Movies is Hard, and so grateful that y'all chose to cover our short for this week's Get Shorty, and that short being... Why Haven't They Fixed the Cameras Yet? <laughs> Why did we make a short versus any other medium? First and foremost, because <laughs> uh, we're broke as hell, that's why for starters. Um, second of all, it's just, honestly, this whole entire project was one big exercise in just doing instead of talking about it. We're um, big fans of the Austin Film Fest. We've been going for years and years uh, just as fans, and Travis has been writing scripts for years, and so one day we're just sitting in the audience of a short film program, and I looked at him, and I'm just like, why aren't we doing this? This is this is easy, we can do this. And so it kind of planted a seed and we just kept um, you know, watering that idea, kept letting it grow, and then finally it turned into something. And why the story? Well, going back to the exercise, we were just looking for any kind of, any story whatsoever that resonated with us that kind of gave us the motivation to make into a short. Um, and that came in the form of a short story that we found on a subreddit called Short Scary Stories. We found the short story, Why Is It So Dark In Here, written by, who, who prefers to go by, Misdirected Souls. Um, it just, it resonated in a way, it took us on a journey. It was written in such a 
clever way that it allowed the reader to mislead and misdirect themselves up until the ending where the rug gets pulled from underneath them. Yeah, and we also found the script during the height of the Me Too movement, which we thought added another layer, um, allowing the audience to come in with their uh, preconceived ideas of what might be going on and um, you know it was a charged up time so we thought that was an interesting play on what was going on in the world. How did your team come up with the funds? So this project is 100% self-funded. We just wanted to put something out there. We wanted to create something, and so it came from us. Um, you know, we just saved enough to be able to get this done. Um, it was about we didn't have any budget in mind. We started off with zero dollars in mind, and so we ended up around thirteen hundred dollars uh, for production, and then around two thousand dollars total uh, after post. Before making the short, what did you think would happen to your career because of it, and what did end up happening? Uh, for me personally, I've, I've always wanted to be a filmmaker my whole life. I've just wanted to create, and for one reason or another, I just hadn't taken the proper steps to do so. Um, so for me, I, 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 I had a dream career in my head, if anything. I, I had no clue what could come of it. We honestly didn't really place many expectations on this project. We kind of just, like she said, we just, this was just a meditation of just doing, shutting the fuck up and doing it. Yeah, we had zero expectations. We just wanted to prove to ourselves that we can do it. And we really didn't have any doubt in our minds that we could get it done. Um, so we didn't expect anything to happen for our career. We were really just excited to work on the project, to film something, um, and, and prove to ourselves that we could do it. And what ended up happening was so much more than we could have anticipated. Um it wound up going on to world premiere at Indie Memphis 2019, which was a fabulous experience. It went on to screen at over 19 festivals. It was nominated over 23 times, and it won, uh, I think, six awards by now, including Best Thriller at Austin Indie, uh, Audience Choice at Spotlight Austin. We won Best Twist Ending. But most of all, what wound up happening from the short was we, we networked. We got to meet so many people and it was just a massive building block and, and just getting that ball rolling and finding and building your own tribe. And, and, and because of that, like, for instance, we had, we, we had shot, why haven't they fixed the cameras yet? We loved it. We got bit by the bug. We had the itch. We needed to scratch it. We were immediately looking to start production on our second short film. Dead in the water. We could not find any means. We couldn't find the resources for six, seven straight months. And it took, it took Why Haven't They a screening at one of the, you know, a local Austin film festival. And someone in the audience who just happened to be a producer happened to catch our short film and enjoyed it so much. They, he approached us afterwards. And two weeks later, we are on set shooting our second short film, Man Seeking Man. And this is all due to the first film and putting it out there. So now that it's out in the world, what purpose does it serve? It's really just a calling card for us. It's something that we have um, that has proven to be, you know, well liked by audience that we're able to show potential producers or other filmmakers and help us with other projects and then ultimately just entertainment. We love showing it to our friends and family and we still love watching it um, at festivals. Would you do anything differently story-wise with the short now that you've lived with it for a few years? I don't think so. I think it is what it is. Uh, Story-wise, it's all there. We just our main concern was all of the 
the emotional beats that that struck through the the short story we wanted to make sure translated to to a, the visual of it and uh i think we've we've obtained that yeah i think if there was anything that we would do differently which you know we we learned from it but it was just being on set for that short film um you know in post-production while travis was editing we realized that we didn't have enough shots we didn't Mm. hold enough on certain shots so if there's anything we learned through that story or when creating that story was was really in production for sure the lessons all came from production 100 percent. and we we took that and we you know put that towards our second short film we made sure to get over coverage we we got we held longer we got every shot possible we, we took the max amount of time patience patience five seconds on set feels like 20 so when you think you've got it you, you really don't but uh that that was a nice lesson that we learned there but hey now the short is out it's out to the public it's on youtube feel free to check it out it's it's been it's done wonders as far as leading us to the next step and uh we continue to climb that staircase we do uh, i think we mentioned it but we are shooting our first feature film in bartlesville oklahoma this year actually holy crap so late august 2021 it's called lady tarantula hawk um we're super stoked before then we're gonna have our second short man seeking man that should be hitting uh, YouTube or whatever, wherever people can check out videos. Hopefully by next year, we're just about to start the festival circuit for that. And Yeah, you can also follow us, our journey, if you want to see a little bit more um, about our feature film. We are on Instagram, of course, Wet Denim Productions. Uh, we have a website, Wet Denim Productions, Twitter, at Wet Denim Productions. So um, you can pretty much follow us anywhere. Awesome. And thank you so much again, Liz, Ulrich. We appreciate you and everything you do for filmmakers. Yeah, we will say, you know, we've reached out to, especially me, I've reached out to Liz a few times asking for some advice. So we want to thank you guys so much for all your help. Um, We are filmmakers just trying to make films. So thank you. Wow, that was great hearing Madison and Travis talk about the film. Um, Auric, what did you think about it? So, um, yeah, I like this movie for a lot of reasons. Um, one of the things I will just say right out of the top, like I don't like voiceover in movies. I feel like voiceover is generally lazy writing. And, you know, whatever you do in voiceover, you can do better with visuals. Um, I will say that this movie you know, is one of those few that is well-suited for voiceover and uses it in a way that works in the end. But I can tell you the first half of the movie, I was like, why is this voiceover? What the hell is going on here? Just show a movie. Why are you telling me in an essay? Like, come on, you know, Uh, show me these things with the character. Why, why are you telling me these things? You know, but it got, you know, at the end, by the end of the movie, um, it kind of ties itself together and it comes together well, nicely. And I, I kind of felt like, okay, that 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 worked in the end. But I still think there's probably a version of this movie that would work better without voiceover. That's just my personal opinion on voiceover. Um, I did like the performances a lot, especially the lead performance. I thought the woman, um, you know, was great. She did an awesome job. And I love the ending. That's probably the thing I liked about the most about this movie is the ending. Cause this is like my type of ending where it flips things on you. Um, and it was kind of brutal. Well, not kind of brutal. It was very brutal. And uh, I felt like 
not necessarily <laughs> deserving of that. Like, sure, that guy's an asshole, but I don't know if he really deserves to get murdered, but maybe, I don't know. I mean, but that's what I like about it is it's like, it's kind of like it leaves you with this un, um, uneasy feeling. Um, so yeah, I overall liked, I thought it was interesting. And, um, you know, I thought for the most part, the camera work and, and stuff was pretty solid, you know, and the, and the pacing was good. Um, but yeah, Liz, what did you think? I think very similarly to what you felt. I, I actually don't mind voiceover. And I thought the voiceover in this was my favorite part. Like, I actually was mm. like, what a great vocal performance. There was softness <laughs> when you needed softness. It almost felt like she was going to cry at moments. Like, I was like, I'm reading a lot into this vocal performance, but I thought it was really strong. Um, similarly to you, like, I don't always think that good things need to happen or bad things need to be motivated, but I wish I could connect the dots more between her glaring at, at, I forgot the male character. I'm an asshole. Glaring at our antagonist, I guess Mm -hmm. we could call him and wanting to murder him. You know, it's like, I wish I could have seen true vitriol that she felt like I wish I could have uh, really gotten into her head before the murder occurred because right now I see that she's like cranky at him but I didn't really see her character earning that action does that make sense right like it just yeah for me it came out of nowhere a little bit um I but I don't need her to be good if that makes sense. Like, I think murdering someone's a horrible thing. Like most people do. I don't need her to like not murder him because of some like ethical quandary, but I just want to see her ramp up to that emotion a little bit better. And I didn't see it there. Um, The timeline wasn't hundred percent clear. I read the log line for the film and it was like after an office party, dot, 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 you know, a woman, um, grapples with broken cameras but i actually thought this was a longer time range did you think yeah. it was all one night no i i just kind of felt like it was something she saw at a party didn't like and then like planned to murder him yeah. because of like their shitty cameras that used to make her feel like make her feel uncomfortable you know but then she's like oh i'll use it to my advantage to murder this son of a bitch you know yeah um but I don't know. I mean, I guess I, I see what you're saying with the whole not earning the murder sort of thing. But um, I don't know. That kind of makes her more insane in a way because it's like she doesn't really have a reason to kill this person. She's just a crazy person who like, you know, is like a, like kind of just took it upon herself to do this terrible thing because she deemed it it was the right thing to do. N- not, not to mention talking to him, reporting him, doing all the other things that you could do in that situation. It's like, no, no, I will just bloodily kill this person <laughs> in the back of a car. Um, that's the best way to deal with this situation. But it was like a so, Travis Bickle thing. Like I was kind of on board for that. I was like, oh, you're trying to right the wrongs of the world. You're really trying to be that superhero. You just like, I'm right. okay if that, that's that character, but I guess- But, you, but you don't, but you don't think that they, did that very well like you don't think they gave us a travis bickle situation because of the writing or because i didn't see her intensity other than when she was in the car i didn't see the intensity at the office party that led me Mm -hmm. to think that that's the reason why she's so upset Mm -hmm. um i also just thought she was a little off balance or a lot of off kilter right and i thought it was a Mm -hmm. longer term scenario and she was upset at the world and not this specific individual so if it is to be pinned on this guy, I wanted to see her hate him a little bit more. 
when she yeah. was with him. I kind of feel like it's more like, you know, she just sees him as like one of the cancers of the world and she's going to rid the world of that cancer and then go on and find the next thing that she deems, you know, unworthy of Probably. being in existence and just killing more, which like, I think is interesting, but yeah, I get, that's a good point. Like, you know, one of the reasons why Travis Bickle works so well is because you really get to see inside his insanity, you know, and like you get to see mm-hmm. him in all these different situations, but I guess it's like, is there a way to do that same thing in a four minute short, you know, um, or does it, or does it not work? But I think I would argue that it does. I bet you, you could do it in a four to five minute short where you could just, you could show us, give us that kind of character, um, you know, and, and like have it, have it resonate. But I guess the thing that you lose is a surprise. And that's one of the things I liked about this was yeah. that it was so surprising. Cause if you, if you did give a Travis Bickle type thing, then you would probably guess what's going to happen, you know? Yeah. And I like that. It's like, you thought that she is the victim you know, but instead she's actually the aggressor. She's hiding. Yeah. And, and but did you, did you guess that or did, was that surprising to you? As soon as she popped up, I knew she was going to do something bad, but it was surprising that she was in his car. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Right. I don't think I necessarily yeah. knew she was in his car and I agree. I thought she was great. And I did really like the way the edit really made the most out of two locations right and mm-hmm. the fact that like you know i like seeing the hellion poster on the wall and i thought it was actually extra production value to have like an off the office felt like it was designed even if it may have been just a found location it felt like it was designed and polished and it wasn't just this like white walled office building right it felt real mm-hmm. i did think it was a solid short I thought it was good to good, fun, efficient. I just, my quibble was in that emotional arc of the, of the lead, but I certainly enjoyed it. Do you feel like, unlike other shorts we've had on the show that may not have had a meaning or a purpose, do you feel like this one has that meaning or message where the other ones lacked it? I did. I mean, part of me put my, I projected this kind of feminist revenge thing onto it. I don't know if that was purposeful and I guess we'll hear because I haven't listened to their answers to the questions yet. But like, I thought it was like, all right, we're gonna, like you were saying, we're gonna invert that female victim stereotype and she's gonna right the wrongs of the world and she's gonna take vengeance where so many women have just been victims. She's gonna make him a victim. Um, That's how I, I read into it might not have been purposeful, but I thought it was kind of this revenge, female revenge fantasy. Right, right. Which I yeah. think is, uh, you know. But you think that's a message thing. enough? Just like a revenge, a revenge fantasy is is good, you know, as far as like having a point and a purpose to the story. Yeah, because it's made in the context of 2020, 2021 or whatever. You know, right, I think it's right. probably 2020 where it's like, that's just gone through a lot of things that have to do right. with women right. being objectified. So I think in that context, if you're bringing that context into watching the film, absolutely. But if you're watching this in the vacuum, yeah, maybe you need a little bit more um, to it. I still think it works because it, it, even if it is, if you don't connect it to like the modern, um, you know, thing that's going on with all the me too stuff and everything it, it still works you know in context with like you know the history of cinema of mm. movies of revenge movies and murder movies and movies where women are the victims in every movie and for once it's like the, the flip of it you know um so yeah no it's good i liked it oh wait can we say one more thing though sure i forgot i i didn't write this down i really liked her 
experience of strangling him, if that makes sense. Like the mm. way, like the grunting noise she made, the way her face, it was like, I don't know. I just thought it was really intense and interesting yeah. and it wasn't stereotypical, right? It wasn't this like, I'm just going to kill him and I'm going to put my squeezy face on and I'm going to strangle him. You know, it was like, you could see there were different levels of struggle for her. Right. And I thought that right. was pretty cool. Yeah, no, I like that too. I thought that that felt authentic. And I feel like we're seeing more uh, murders and killings in movies these days that have more of like that kind of authentic feeling reaction, you know, mm -hmm. although we have never murdered anybody. So we really don't know what authentic is, but- You don't know if I've ever, than... you don't, you're making that assumption, Auric, and I don't appreciate okay. it. <laughs> sure. Fine, Liz can be a murderer, people. That I'm not gonna take that away from her. Um, but uh, I guess what it is, it's like having the character, the, the murderer, like have a reaction be beyond "I look cool murdering," you know, which yeah. is usually what they, what you give someone when they're doing a murder is like, "Yeah, I'm a fucking badass, killing this person," you know. But like to yeah. show pain and fear, anger, confusion, whatever, like while mm -hmm. that act is, is happening from the aggressor. I think is what we're talking about here. And that was cool to see that. I know I regret giving myself the opportunity to be a murderer on this podcast. And I would like to retract my murderous <laughs> insinuation. I'm a vegetarian. Liz, so like Liz is this not feels a weird. Murderer. She's okay. not a murderer, people. <laughs> Just so you know, there's no, there's no, don't send the cops after her. Um, I needed that. Thank you. And she's not even a murderer of, of animals even. <laughs> so even better. It's great. Well, anyways, Travis and Madison, thank you so much for sharing your short. If you want to share your short with us, we would love to watch it. We'd love to talk about it openly and send it to us and we will do so. But yeah, I think it's time to get to our wonderful conversation with Andrew Peterson. We're here today with Andrew Peterson. Again, I will call you my hero of heroes and I, uh, I, my enthusiasm does not wane for you ever, but I'll stop with that because apparently it jinxes everyone. Um, and let's, we normally start off the show with like a breakdown of a latest release, but instead we're going to talk about the Sundance satellite screenings at, um, Film North, right? So can you tell us a little bit about what that is? Yeah. Yeah. Th uh, thanks. Thanks for having me on. This is fun. Um, um, uh, Film North has been around for over 30 years and we've had a long partnership with Sundance. Uh, in the early uh, uh, days of planning for this uh, satellite screening uh, initiative of theirs, they reached out to us and we were, were an official partner uh, presenting um, in-person, live, safe screenings in Minneapolis. Uh, we're doing it at the Riverview Theater, which is right uh, in, the, in the heart of um, the Third Precinct, where all the, um, the, the horrible stuff that happened around George Floyd happened. So it's a little bit of the rebuild and, and support for that neighborhood. And, and then we'll also be creating some online content for a, a platform they call Beyond Film. Um, so that's, that's what we've got coming up. There are about, there are, uh, 20 or 30 cities in the U S that are Sundance partners and doing just what we're doing, but, uh, with programming that we hope is tailored very specifically to our audiences from the Sundance lineup. How can people see it? Is it the same sort of thing where you can log in? as well, or do you have to be there in person? You know, it's a good, it's a great question. And, and one we, uh, the, and uh, it's, it's a difficult thing for Sundance to pull together very quickly on the timeline that they did. So the way that, that the online screenings goes, that's not, any, that doesn't have, really have anything to do with any of us on um, uh, satellite screens. We're doing, we're, we're responsible for live in-person screenings and then online conversations and panels that we're creating. So uh, the great thing about the Sundance platform though, is that short films, new frontiers, uh, panels and conversations are all free. 
So uh, you just log into to Sundance. You go to Sundance, the, the festival web, Sundance's festival website. Um, create uh, create an account, and then you can access all this stuff for free. Um, that's amazing. And then I guess I was just curious for those local to um, the Minneapolis area, how are you eventizing these screenings? I assume, I just knowing you, I know that it's more than just people walking into a movie theater and then walking out at the end of it. That's all it is. No kidding. Um, it's um, I, I, We're doing it safely first off. I mean, uh, 10 days ago, Minnesota cinemas were closed. Um, they have now opened to 25% capacity with a max of 150 people. Uh, the Riverview is a 700 seat cinema and we're selling 70 tickets. We're at 10%. We're doing one screening a day. We're trying to be as safe as possible. Uh, turning things around and, and, uh, and cleaning the theater and, and having uh, you know heat mapping and just this very safe way of getting people into the theaters. Uh, there will be some special content before films. We've had a lot of Minnesota filmmakers as fellows and in the festival recently. We're gonna sh we're, our plan is to showcase some past Sundance short film selections by Minnesota filmmakers before the screenings. Uh, I'll be there to do my little tap dance before the before the thing starts. And and in the case of um, Wild Indian, which is made by Lyle uh, Mitchell Corbin Jr., who's a Minnesota filmmaker, he will be in attendance. And I'll be doing a Q&A with him after the film. Well, with that, um, all right, is it OK? Do you feel like we could jump on to just interviewing Andrew and just harassing yeah, him with our it. five million questions? Let's harass um, him. <laughs> Andrew, is there a way that you can provide a quick bio, because I think one of the things I just um, am always impressed by you is by how you do so much and maybe just giving people a primer on everything that you do <laughs> would be a good way to start <laughs> off the conversation. You'd think I'd have this down. I I, uh, I don't. I, I, I wing it every time. So it's just I'm a bit of a hoarder. I think I have the appearance of being a film job hoarder. I get them and I never let them go. And I just, you know, add a new one and then I find a way to keep it. And then, I you know, but um. The, uh, you know, I, I went to NYU for film school and lived in New York for a bunch of years uh, while I, I dropped out and I produced a feature film in Minnesota that won Frameline. And, and then I started, I was a location manager and I worked on with great directors like David Lynch and other folks like that. And I, I, in my film school was like being on set for a lot of, a lot of films. I actually just revisited my very first film, which was Beautiful Girls from Miramax. It ages a little awkwardly around the Natalie Portman storyline, but, um, but it's, um, and unfortunately, but it's, but I mean, it's, it was really fun to go back and just sort of see the way that I was able to collaborate. I, I felt really special in the way that I collaborated with, with, with directors. Um, location managers sometimes can just be sort of, you know, a, a position where they ask you to uh, execute a job. And, uh, but, you know, at a certain point during Beautiful Girls, Ted Demi, the director just said, you get the film, just choose all the locations. And, um, you know, and with David Lynch to be able to drive around with him and, and sort of come back to him with notes and go back and forth and get into his head. It was sort of like, it was, you know, the directors don't always have time to do this, but also it was that special relationship with the production designer and us sort of you know, having that that conversation before we took something to the director, it was my film school better than NYU, frankly. And um, the uh, but I, I, I so I started off location managing. I did some independent producing um, in Minnesota. We were doing we were strong in the '90s. You know, at the time we shot Beautiful Girls, uh, Feeling Minnesota with Keanu Reeves and Fargo were shooting all at the same time. Um, we were all, you know, there was a lot of work here, you know, grumpy old men, you know, all these other stuff, uh, Mighty Ducks, it was all the time, there was always a movie, you know, Dario Rojanto was here, and all this stuff, you know, there's, uh, but then it dried up, we fell behind in the tax incentive thing, and I had to pivot. So I start. I, I, I started working film festivals. 
uh, and I was, uh, I started, I was, uh, and that, that led me to Provincetown Film Festival and actually a three-year stint working with Sundance and then continuing on as a, as a consultant uh, for both operations and some programming. Um, along the way I wrote, I wrote for the, there's a Village Voice Syndicate here, City Pages. I was, I wrote about film and pop culture here. Uh, I started to teach a little bit. I, I've, I've taught filmmaking courses at McAllister and Middlebury Colleges. And then, um, and then at Provincetown, I got a job offer from uh, uh, some friends of mine who were launching a production company in Minnesota that was really well funded. And they asked me to, to help head up the production division. So I moved back home. And I uh, produced, we produced four features with uh, Todd Salons, Rob Epstein and, and Jeffrey Friedman, um, Lawrence Kasdan and Jill Sprecher. Um, I had sort of had, I, I felt it was time to move on. I gave my notice and nobody knew that. And two days later, IFP Minnesota called me for a recommendation for an interim executive director. And I was like, well, I'm available. And I thought I would only be there six months and I've been there eight years. It's been, uh, you know, I can talk a lot about how passionate I am about the, you know, it was really the youth programs. And it all comes back to what I did in Minnesota in the 90s. I was, I, I worked on sets that were primarily straight, white and male. Uh, there were times I felt unsafe as a queer guy, you know, people would assume, you know, I guess some people couldn't pick up on the hints. Um, uh, and they, they assumed straightness from me and they would say pretty hateful and awful things in front of me. And, um, you know, and I just took it, you know, I just kind of figured that's the way we work. You know, and that's that's my admission into this world of film and I got to deal with it. And, you know, thankfully, we all know that's changed since 1994. Uh, to the way it is today. But when I hit what was then IFP Minnesota and is now called Film North, I saw 15 year old me and and 15 year old me's of from every culture here in Minnesota uh, taking courses. And I'm like, where are we losing these people? Where, why aren't they the film crew here? Why aren't they the makers? And, 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 and our organization is positioned to empower them to tell their stories, to believe their stories have value and to stay engaged with them so that they're, so that they, they don't fall through the cracks or you know how easy it is. This is a tough business. You know, um, some people, some people check out on the first speed bump, you know, it's sort of like, but you know, if, if you've got a support system around you, you'll stick around. So, um, so that's, you know, so that really engaged me and I've been really excited about the work we've been able to do. Um, uh, and then through it all, I've kept my Provincetown job. I'm director of programming for the film festival there since 2006. Um, so, you know, I, and I'm able to leverage a lot of those contacts for our Minnesota filmmakers, but, um, and it's all led to a place right now. I'm not taking credit for Lyle's work, but we have the, the story of indigenous filmmaking in Minnesota is so exciting. Winona Wilms won a nickel fellowship two years ago. Uh, we, uh, you know, Leah Hale is a Sundance fellow from 2020. Lyle was a Sundance fellow. You know, Missy Whiteman has had support from, uh, from the Sundance Institute. Um, yeah, I've always said the co the next Cohen brothers I want to see out of Minnesota, uh, come from the Somali East African community, the Native American community, you know, the Hmong community. They're, they're, Minnesota is a lot more diverse than I think the rest of the world knows. And that was another message I wanted to get out from my desk at Film North. And you also partied with Prince, just to throw that into the conversation, because it's something you've told me and I think everyone should know. Partied is, 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 is taking a little bit far. I, yeah, part of the story is I spent about, I spent five years working on and off with Prince. My last job was my one of my favorites, which was, uh, it was just Prince, his cinematographer and I traveling between five cities to um, for it was for t a temptation it was a it was he played tiny clubs like Roseland in New York and I was there to sort of 
handle it. You know, we checked into the Four Seasons in New York behind Jerry Garcia and we get to Prince's suite and he says, I want to shoot a music video. And I'm like, uh, okay. So the cinematographer, I, and he starts shooting and I see Magritte Prince on the wall and I call my brother who's a curator and I said, how do I get permission from Magritte Prince really quickly? You know, it was like an episode of, you know, some reality show where you're tasked with something stupid, you know, within you know, within three hours, I had permission from the Magritte estate, you know, you know, to be doing all this. Cause it's like, cause I had to, we'd already shot it. Um, so, uh, but yeah, there was, you know, I did assistant director work, location manager work. And then, um, and then this last gig, which was a coordinating and then just so it doesn't sound too fancy. It took all five years in that last gig before he talked to me and, uh, you know, first person to person. <laughs> It was usually whisper to that person, go tell Andrew what I just said. Genius, genius. Just, I mean, that, that was, uh, you know, just uh, uh, unforgettable. So it's kind of amazing just hearing about your career because it's very varied. Like you started like as a crew person on set doing location managing, you know, all other things, assistant directing. Then you go into producing, you know, which is a completely different sort of thing. You're on a different level. And now you're, you know, running this organization. It's like, it's kind of interesting, but I guess the question I'm trying to get to is like, when you started out, like what, what was your goal? You know, when you first got into filmmaking and you first got into location management and how is it different than where you ended up? I know it's like pick a lane already. Um, you know, when I graduated from college, I started to intern at the Minnesota film board. So, and within six months, one, uh, there were two, there was an executive director and two vice or president and two vice presidents is how it was set up. So I was the intern. And within, within six months, one vice president quit. The other one was fired. And then the board asked the, uh, the, the executive, the president to step down. So within six months, the intern was running the company. So, um, so I had a very fast sort of, so in many ways, it's sort of like I started off waiting tables and interning somewhere. And then the universe just said, you know what, you're going to work in film. And um, so, you know, I had to, I, I, I learned very quickly. I met a lot of directors and then on, uh, you know, Alan Rudolph was actually my first job um, on um, Equinox. And he just, I'd taken him around in my job as an intern and he said, hey, you want to be my location manager? And my negotiating skills was, all, you know, are still just as beautiful as this. I said, I, I've never done that before. You know, most people like if an actor would be like, I can tap dance. Of course, I can ride a horse. I can speak French, you know, um, you know, when you can't. But for me, it was like I was like, I've never done that. And he was like, eh, I think you can pick it up. And so, um, you know, and I, I uh, it was horrible. Oh, my God. So so I was hired and then I got into NYU and he said, well, no, you can still be this. But OK, be the assistant location manager and hire your boss. So I hired my boss, which was Bob Graff, who has since gone on to an illustrious career, producing basically all the Coen brother movies, Terry Zweigoff, all this sort of stuff. And I know Bob and I are great friends, but you know, he, I could just see on the set, he just looked over at me and go, you fucking idiot. You, if I can swear. Cause I was like, I couldn't make a map right. I made it the way that I thought the, it was supposed to go. So North was never North. It was whichever, if I was sitting in my office, I was like, okay, take a left from here. You know, and I would draw a line that way, wherever it made sense for my desk. And, you know, and, and on opening, on the opening day of the, you know, first day of filming, the, there was a kickoff party and it turned into a goodbye Andrew party. They gave me gifts, you know, and Alan all said all these nice things about me. And from across the room, Bob was like, I'm doing everything, you know. Um, anyway, so to get to your question, though, filmmaker, I always wanted to be a filmmaker. I, you know, my very first job, I, I sort of accidentally fell into it. I, I applied to NYU and in the early 90s, I, I got into the grad program. And, um, you know, I, my films did, my short films did very well. 
and I've been trying to get a feature of my own off the ground for, you know, different films off the ground for a while. We've been cast and fine and funded in that typical indie way for a long time for a project of mine called Get Happy. Um, and uh, a, a little comedy that I, I do hope to make one day. So in many ways, all these other jobs are just like, you know, while I'm trying to make this film, I'll do this, you know? But as I tell a lot of other uh, filmmakers here, that's, there's a lot of worse things. Some people can get really distracted by that and that becomes their life. But the other thing is, is like, I met Crew. When we produced my first, uh, the first feature that I produced, um, we were able to do that in 18 days for $50,000 because, um, my producing partner was a line producer in town. She had hired almost everybody for the print shoots. I knew everybody from the set. The two of us were asking the A-list crew in Minnesota to give us two days here, two days there and work for free and help us out. But we had built our networks and we, you know, when it came time to edit, you know, we edited Paisley Park. Prince was gone and the Avids were there, you know, and it's sort of like, you know, it's, you, you pull it all together, but you know, that's the upside to sort of like having the day job that's, that puts you in contact with crew members in the industry. And when I started to program, it's like, Hey, I'm meeting distributors and publicists and producers, and I'm expanding my network every time. When I left, it was called Work, Work, Works, the place where we produced four features. I spent four years there. And when I left, I was, you know, Jay Cohen at, at, at Gersh and Jessica Lacey at ICM were just like, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm a filmmaker. And they're like, in four years, you never mentioned that to us. Let me read the script. And, they, you know, and then they were like, let me help. You know, it's sort of like, this is what this is, you know, they, they, uh, you know these are the things that happen when you, um, when you sort of keep two tracks going at the same time. Can we talk a little bit about that? Because you clearly have the relationships where you could go out and produce this get happy feature right now on a micro budget level. Like I, I could see a pathway where you could do that. Um, but a lot of people in artist support have a different vantage point on what projects get off the ground, really leverage careers, amplify individuals as artists. Are you choosing to do a slightly larger project so that you could really make your entrance into the world or what, why not just make this for pennies on the dollar? Yeah, no, that's a really good point. You know, there's, I, there's, there's several things that come in, that, that come into this. Um, you know, one is the biggest, one of the biggest lessons I learned was when I sat on the other side of the desk by being an executive at work, work, works. So I was, you know, and I saw me submitting projects. Here's a guy who won a lot of awards at NYU and has a really great short film and submitted to this company. And I'm like, but look at our lineup. The, the filmmakers that are named are all our tours. They're all well-established. And we made one movie a year. It's sort of like, are we going to take a chance on that Andrew Peterson? So I sort of said, God, you know what? I thought I was building this really great package that I was giving to you guys. But now my script is sitting next to Terry Gilliam's script, who's going to the same company asking for the same thing. And to Jeffrey Friedman and, and, and Rob Epstein, who've been trying to make this movie for a while. And they've got James Franco attached. And they've got, you know, uh, Therese Dupre as their, uh, and, they, and they've got all these, you know, you know, this package that everybody's been passing on great films and great packages are passed on all the time. And then I'm this guy who's, you know, you know, that, you know, promise. And where are the companies that are funding promise? So, um, you know, that's a tough thing to find. And it requires them to really know you, you know, just like when I say talk to filmmakers about applying to a festival, your odds are increased when you've met the programmer. You know, if they, you know, when I program for province, now, if I've met you, uh, and I like you, uh, you know, I say to a lot of filmmakers, good content rises to a certain level. And at a certain level, we start to nitpick. 
you know, and, and one of the nitpicks is you're an asshole, you know, and I don't want you in my festival, you know, um, or I love you. And he is so, she is so awesome that, you know, it's not their best work, but we're going to take it. You know, um, you know, and that kind of comes into film financing as, as well. But to your point about the budget, yeah, I'm prepared to go at any budget. But you know what I learned as well is whether it's five million, five hundred thousand or fifty thousand dollars, whoever's giving you that money. It's a lot of money to them and you are a big risk. And it's because the company that does the five million doesn't finance the fifty thousand, and the company, you know. So it's sort of it's it's different people who fund at different levels. And when you're and when I'm putting my you know my project, you know Gersh and I see I'm put it out as three million. And I was like nobody's giving me three million dollars. I don't have. I knew what was out there from sitting at my desk at Work Work Works. I was just like. I'm not the guy that's getting $3 million for this film. Please ask for just a million or please ask for just seven fifty. you know? And, and then the other lesson that I got was, you know, over the years, um, most recently I, you know, Minette Louie just said to me, she said, you know, uh, we had her out here as a guest when she won her spirit award before, you know, in the very early part of her career. And she was like, funding a film isn't named that tune. You've written a script, know the bottom line. And when that funder says, I'll give you $500,000 to do it, say, I can't, you know, I have to rewrite it to be a $500,000 movie. This script requires 750, you know, and that's, and, and my, I, I'm a, I'm that stupid guy with Get Happy who wrote a script that is stars. And, and believe me, please know that this is all with love. I wrote a script that stars women in their mid thirties. Um, you know, that, uh, that, you know, you could be, you know, the biggest star in a woman in your mid thirties and you'll get a lot of Hollywood saying you can't find it. You can't, you know, helm a movie. You can't anchor a movie, let alone, you know, and then you get down into my level. I remember the first time we took this out, they were like, I want you to get Marissa Tomei and Jessica Lange. You know, it was sort of like, they're not signing on to this movie. You know, this is, you know, please know I'm not underselling myself. I think they'd be awesome in the parts, but, but, you know, like right most recently, somebody said, let's send it to Rebel Wilson. It's like, okay, Rebel Wilson just did a romantic comedy, you know, at the time, you know, that's, that was made for, you know, you know, seven, uh, eight figures. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, where she's the lead, is she going to pivot now to a 500,000? He said, oh no, we'll up the budget to 3 million. And it's like, okay, is she going to pivot to 3 million with me as the director, first time director when she's doing this and she's, you know, it's her face, it's her career. And she has a team behind her that's protecting her against people like me, frankly, that, that uh, I'm not saying they should, but that's what they do. It is tough. I remember talking to, I won't name names, but one of the honorees we had in Provincetown was in an amazing film that I loved so much. And she was the lead in it. And she said she had to go to the mat with her, with her agents because they did not want her to do that movie because it was that direct, it was only that director's second movie. Now, um, and, and you know what, and it's, and you have to find the actor who's willing. And again, then you have to have a relationship who's like, I'm fighting to work with Andrew instead of I've never met him before and I'm signing on. And, you know, I'm not gonna meet Jessica Lange until she signs on to my project, frankly, or is read it and is considering it. You know, so uh, if I haven't met her before in my life until now. So I don't wanna sound cynical with this, but I've been around this industry for a while and this is my perspective. There's a, there's a wonderful way forward with your film. And for me, what it needs to be is me writing a new script that can be made for $100,000 and, and make Get Happy second. So I have a, a list of questions from that 
what you just said because you said a lot of amazing things. Um, but I guess the one that's the most most uh, on the top of my list is you're talking about they're they're trying to take your film out for three million dollars to get financing. You said, oh, make it one million seven fifty. Did did they do that? Did they? No. Did the no. Um, and, and I'm not saying that, why not. It, it's um I I can't answer exactly my you know what it but what it comes down to over the years of working you know because you know all the agencies would pitch work 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 some films we made films around the five million dollar range you know so they they'd throw in you know tier ones we were we, we did all of our films reunion and it's sort of like so they you know they always pitch us the five million dollar film or the film that was they had made a, a non-union budget of like 2.8 but we knew that same scheduled union would bring it up to around you know four or five but so they pitch us some things that had a budget in, in that range and a budget to that range. Um, but when it, um, uh, but when, but the agent, I worked very closely with the agents. Um, when it's done for a low thing, it tends to be a passion project for an actor that's already there um, and uh, has maybe developed the project or uh, came across it in some way and really want, you know, and really believes in it. Um, and I've had that you know, over the years where we've had an actor attached and we're like, you know what, we need to lower the budget. They're like, I'm staying with it. You know, use my, use my name and we'll go out and we'll, we'll, we'll get it done for whatever we can get. Um, you know, so there's, you know, tends to be the, so agencies will go lower. I, I tend to find for the most part when it's that, when it's just sort of like, Hey, we're taking a chance on you. And now you want to lower the budget there. There's not much, there's not much in it for them unless I'm really, really young, you know, and I'm somebody that they can work with in their, for a, you know, they can see a long track run with working with me, you know? Um, and uh, the other is just whether, whether or not it's already got talent attached and that they feel that they can get it out, but you know, they make their money, they're a business model and they make their money certain ways. And it's not by doing charity work, you know, and it's not, and it's not often, you know, when they're, they've got a lot of, low, low, low budget films that they're trying to get out there from their clients, you know, I'm not the client, you know, so it's sort of like, so that there's some roadblocks there. Um, I'm not saying they didn't, but it's sort of like, you know, we talked about lowering the budget and going out and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, and they were always receptive to that, but when it came out to like, let's, let's take it. And it's all, this is the one thing I always tell filmmakers. You're always people. I don't want to sound like you're selling yourself short, but so often everybody's going to sell you the sky and you got to come back down to reality. And it's sort of like, and for me, I knew thir 3 million was not realistic. I just knew it. And I just recently had a conversation with a filmmaker about this and they said, well, we, we, you know, this is what's going on. And I said, look, this is how it's going to play out. And this is, this is how I see it playing out. And this was going to happen. Six months later, he was just like, they, they tapped all their 3 million people and the 3 million people said no. And we're, we're, we're back down to where it should be. And as filmmakers, we know where our film sits well. The bigger the budget, the less, the less control you're gonna have over it. Um, and, uh, and you know, with that filmmaker that I was talking to, I was talking to them as if they were me, which is just like, you wanna keep control, right? Then, you know, it's not that everybody wants $3 million to make their movie, but you know, do you want control? Do you want that movie to be yours? Do you want that movie to, you're, you, the first thing you put out in the world, do you want it to really represent you or do you want it to be a series of compromises and negotiations? So, um, you know, which is what I found, which is what I found in the, in the time that we did do the 3 million with mine and we had an actor attached, I, I wasted three years of my life. Um, um, you know, no hard feelings on anybody, you know, but it's like the rewrites that were required, the, you know, the other projects that came up for that actor, 
the, you know, that I'm in second, third position all the time, you know, and it's sort of like, you know, this was, these were things where, you know, it's just, you know, took me three years to see the light. Just a a quick follow-up to my original question, which is, would you ever make it with unknowns and just make it yourself and just go out and make the movie? Very good question. And not not get happy, but this $100,000 feature. Yes. Well, here's the thing. The first feature I ever produced in 1994, is called World in Time Enough. Now go back in, there, in our time machines, in our heads, back to 1994. There were three TV networks. And when you wanted to see a movie, you went to the movies. And if you were making a queer movie, this is two years, this is two or three years after Poison, after Go Fish. This is the same year as Go Fish. This is early when the, when the audience was like, I want to see it. We opened World in Time Enough, Strand took it into 10 theaters, and it broke records from New York to San Francisco. We sold out the Castro. We sold out this. And even back then, after one week of booking this no-name film and breaking records, we were pushed out for a Miramax film that made less than us because Miramax was going to always deliver them a film. And those venues were like, uh, my bread's buttered over here. Yeah, I'm passing on $10,000 today with you, but you know, I'm going to make somewhere Blair Witch is coming down the road. You know, it's sort of like, I'm going to make money with these guys. So now, now take us to a place where we are today and it's worse no name, quote unquote, no name films do not get into theaters. So um, I, for the most part, they just don't. Um, it's not a, I don't think it's a realistic thing to make a filmmaker believe is going to happen. Again, don't hate on me for saying that there's exceptions to every single thing I say, but take it this way. We know that fi- from a film, fa- that from an independent film standpoint, you, in many ways, you need film festivals to back you, right? To get, to get that. Now I'm a programmer of a film festival. I am a nonprofit and I'm working on razor thin margins. Am I going to program films with quote unquote, no name actors that are, you know, yes, I will. But what I'm going to, what am I for Provincetown? You raise your odds. If you are a new England director, if your film was shot in Massachusetts, because I got to sell tickets because tickets are 30% of my film festival's revenue. And if I don't hit that, my festival goes out of business. You know, it's sort of like there's, it's just a fact. But, you know, what I love about Provincetown is that we've got theaters where we take chances. We've got, we've got, uh, we've got venues that are 40 seats and 70 seats. And, and it's sort of like, you know, and then we've got our big theater, you know, that we, you know, where we might play once or a film like that, you know, and, and then, you know, and, 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 you know, some queer titles that are really going to sell really well, but then, you know, it's just, it's difficult to sell those films, even to a film festival. Now within film festivals, we all know that, more than just Sundance are meaningful festivals, but it's still a small handful. You know, you got Sundance, South by and Tribeca, uh, you know, sort of in that, what we might call tier one in the US. And then after that, it's like, where does the press and industry attend in, in meaningful numbers? And that's only about a dozen. Provincetown is one of those, you know, David like Rooney. Provincetown, Hall- Woodstock, Hamptons, yeah. these kind of, yeah. Yeah, Hamptons, uh, Nantucket, uh, Mill Valley, um, you know, there's there, you know, uh, New Orleans has a great uh, press and industry attendance. And it's sort of like, you know, there, but they're like, there are bylines that come out of Provincetown. David Rooney with Hollywood Reporter reviews out of us. We've had sales come out of Provincetown, um, you know, and then again, uh, to take, to take, pull back the curtain a little bit, let's be honest why. Provincetown is awesome and everything about it is awesome, but it's also a lot of this industry is queer. And a lot of them want to go to Provincetown. They justify a trip to Provincetown by by attending, you know, and reviewing. I'm not saying that's what David does, but you know, review films. Um, you know, you 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 carve out a place in your year to go out there because you know, 
I love going to New Orleans. My, my husband's from there. And it's sort of like, you know, I go to the New Orleans Film Festival every year and, I'm, and I go there for the programming, yes, but I'm also like, I, I can't go to every film festival. I carved them out. And within Provincetown, we've got John Waters. We've been able to build something up where we've had, you know, our honorees are like Tilda Swinton and, you know, Aubrey Plaza and, and Gael Garcia Bernal, plus on the director's side, you know, Sofia Coppola and Ang Lee and, you know, Guy Madden and all these uh, great folks. So, the, you know, we're this sort of heartbeat for independent film that can take chances in some theaters, but most film festivals aren't like this. They just aren't. And, um, but getting back to your question is sort of like, yes, I would make a film with no name actors, but here's how I define a no name actor. Go to Sundance um, uh, for the last three years and look at who's been in their competition films. Um, there are, uh, I had a friend who was needed a 40 year old actress in the lead in her, in her film. And I was just like, Julianne Nicholson, Melanie Linsky, uh, Brooke Smith. I said, you know, there are there are actors out there that Sundance, if you just do a little bit of research, adores. And it's like, oh my God, you gave them the lead? I gotta see this film. You know, those are the people that I say, I, yes, I will make a no-name film, but there are, there are th several levels of quote unquote no-name films. I hate that term, but it's true. You know, if I made it with all Minneapolis actors, they can get out of the park, you know? And I may, but I may not play anywhere but the Minnesota film festivals with it. And that's not gonna get me distribution for the most part, a national distribution and a platform distribution. But then say, if I take it that next step up and I say, who's a festival darling right now? Who is an awesome actor that everybody wants to see in the lead and cast that person? I've increased my odds everywhere. I'm at least gonna watch or get a really good solid watch from every one of these programmers for those festivals. And I'm gonna, if I don't get into those tier one festivals, I'm probably gonna get into one of those, those, that, those next level ones. Um, that's the way I look at casting. You know, when we did, I produced a film, co-produced a film called Older Than America in 2007 and Scott Kahn was in a role. Keep in mind, this is 2007. And an iPhone was just introduced, what's this thing? And I said, um, and he dropped out and I said, how about Bradley Cooper? And everyone's like, who's Bradley Cooper? And I'm like, everybody's paying, you know, in this industry, everybody was paying attention to Bradley Cooper. He was much like, I, I compare him to Lauren Graham before Gilmore Girls. Everybody was giving them a shot because they loved them but they just didn't click yet. They didn't get that role. And, you know, and he got Wedding Crashers and, th and, his, and his career just completely changed. Um, you know, one year later, he would not have played that role in Older Than America. But you gotta, that's the dumb luck sort of thing when you're casting is like, who's on that trajectory? Who's that actor? That is, uh, and then on the conversely, if you're, if you're hopefully, as you did, Liz, working with actors, quote unquote, of a certain age, you know, they don't get, opportunities to really dig into a fully formed character beginning to end a lot. They're playing supporting, they're playing character, you know, um, you know, and it's sort of like, you know, they'll, they'll consider this and they'll do it. And it's just, you know, it's, a, and their, and their dreams to, you know, it's a dream to me to work with any of these actors who've built careers, um, you know, like they have. And, um, you know, at Provincetown with our awards, we honored Tilda Swinton before she ever got an Oscar because we were like, the way we looked at our awards, we were like, who's awesome? And the industry isn't paying attention to in the way that we think they can. And that's the way we look at honorees and that's the way you should look at cast. So here, here's a follow-up question. Cause you're saying that like, you know, with Get Happy, like you're, you're, you're gonna like put that in the background for your second film and you're gonna work on a $100,000 budget film for your first film. 
why can't Get Happy be that $100,000 first song? It needs a rewrite, and I don't like where the rewrite would take it to bring the budget down. Uh, um, yeah. there's, a, there's a wedding. There are, uh, you know, it's, 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 I did everything wrong, everything wrong. The way that I talk to filmmakers today about a short film, it's like, don't have 50 locations and 30 speaking parts. It's two characters in one location, right? And it's like, and the same things for a low budget feature. It needs to start skewing toward that. Um, you know, if you're going to do company, you know, you know, instead of doing company moves, I mean, I love, there was, uh, there was a, not a, a, there was a Neil Butte film called Some Velvet Morning. It all, you know, Stanley Tucci and Alice Eve, and it's all one house. And, but you know what? There's the living room, there's the backyard, there's the kitchen, there's a bedroom, there's the front porch, and there's this. You find a way to make that location work for an hour and a half, but it, it you know, and there's no company moves. You know, uh, you're pre-lighting the bedrooms while you're working in this thing or whatever it is that you're doing. You're working with natural light is what he, they did in that film. That's what would have to be, that would have to be laid over on to get happy. And it's not, it's like taking how to, how to you know, what is it? Uh, uh, around the world in 80 days and saying, can it all just be one location? <laughs> right. That's, that's my film. It doesn't work. So it's much like Damien Chazelle. He wanted to make La La Land first from what I hear. You know, uh, nobody would finance that ambition on a first feature for somebody. He makes, makes pivots, makes whiplash. They say, what do you want to do next? And he's like, I got this. Here it is. You know, that's, that's, that's the way I'm looking at Get Happy. Oh, Rick, I know you have like 30 questions. All my questions are about film festivals. So I'll, I'm, I can wait. I will pivot. Well, here, <laughs> I do have a, a film festival question. So maybe you go with your film festival question first, and then I can go with my film festival question. Well, um, briefly, I just wanted to thank Andrew, because Andrew, um, <laughs> I don't know if I'm allowed to say this publicly, did advise on the casting of Speed of Life. And I'm always eternally grateful to him for his amazing suggestions. And they uh, worked out. Anyway, um, <laughs> for the festival world, um, I've asked you this question privately, but I think your answer should be kind of, I think it should be publicized. But obviously, we just are going through this global pandemic where, you know, <laughs> we just had a attempted coup, there is an uprising, <laughs> there's like, you know, we're in the middle of a lot of, uh, horrible things that are happening. And um, there's this wonderful special relationship between independent film filmmakers and fe film festivals. And I guess the two for question is, how can we as filmmakers support film festivals better? And then what do you see? How do you see film festivals being impacted right now by everything that's going on? Yeah, you know, um, I, I think some festival to start last first, I think some festivals aren't going to make it. Um, uh, that's sad, but, um, you know, if I'm going to be, you know, completely candid, we probably had too many to begin with. Um, the, 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 when there, when there, when there are a lot of film festivals, you get a big bucket of them that are not thinking of the filmmaker first. And I think it's the, the best festivals to me are the ones where it's a partnership between the festival the filmmaker and the industry. And it's, uh, and that's where Provincetown sits really, really well. It's like, we're going to create opportunities for you as a filmmaker. We are, our laurel leaves are going to have meaning for you if they can't come to our festival. Um, you know, and, uh, you know, uh, Stephen Kayak is a, is a documentary filmmaker that I really love. He just did something for HBO Max called Equal. That's awesome. Um, you know, when he was making, uh, oh, and uh, I don't know if you, are you familiar with him, Liz? Have you ever met him? No, not yet. Because da David Bowie executive <gasps> produced uh, Scott Walker, 30th Century Man, which he did. Oh, right, 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 right. 
So I was thinking there was this little connection there. But you know, he had he had David Bowie on board. You know, in the same way we had Gus Van Sant on board for Howl, which is just a, they're not there every day. They're not they don't have a desk and an extension that you can get them about this film. They're just they're lending their name and they're you know bring me in for five calls and I'll you know and and you know I'm here for you. You know, but David David Bowie, executive producing Scott Walker, 30th Century Man, got him, um, you know, interviews with Radiohead and all these other things and the people that he really needed to get to. But he was short $250,000. He was at Provincetown for the festival. And I, you know, I across the room, I met somebody who said, like, she was looking to put some money into some documentaries. And I said, hey, let me bring Stephen over here. And it got him $250,000. And I'm just saying this is, you know, we're we're thinking about you all the time is what I just mean. It, it, you know, good festivals are thinking about their filmmakers all the time. You know, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's, um, it's, it's not a using a user situation where it's just sort of like, you're a problem. You know, we've got your film now stop being a problem. You know, um, you know, frankly, that describes a lot of short filmmakers, but, um, but uh, to be candid, but the, um, but, Last thing you'd ever want to do to a film festival is, is be a problem or an actual problem uh, or be an asshole, if I can say that, because we remember we're elephants and we will never forget. Um, so, but the, um, and we talk, programmers, we all talk to each other. It comes up, trust me. Um, uh, so, but the, but we, we were, that's the biggest thing is just film festivals that have the film, that have the filmmakers interest at heart. What are the opportunities for me at your festival? You know, wh when I get there, um, uh, now festivals are nonprofits. Don't expect the world, but at least something, you know, uh, you know, will I, you know, will I get a festival pass? Will I have access to, are there any sort of industry events where I have access to your guests that are there? Will you create introductions? Will you do this sort of thing? You know, now Provincetown is lucky in that, you know, we only program around 50 features and of that maybe 20 people attend, um, you know, so that's sort of, you know, it's different than the, that big metropolitan area festival that has 300 features and, you know, and a lot of people there. It's sort of like, you have to, you have to sort of gauge it, you know, scale your, your expectations a little bit from what's there. But then again, in a big metropolitan area, I would hope there's an industry event. I would hope there's a mixer. I would hope that there is a, there's a chance for you to do some one-on-ones with some folks that are there. These are, these are things that I think are, the fir are of an early question a filmmaker should ask. And it goes back to why I sort of tiered those festivals and started by saying, what are the ones with press and industry there? Because the bottom line for that is the festival should work for you one way or the other. Your select, it does you no benefit to assemble a million uh, laurel leaves um, if they're all from festivals that don't have, that the press and industry doesn't pay attention to. I just want to like, like yeah. underline exclamation point, bold that, and then Look, I can be quiet again. No, seriously. <laughs> you can play one festival and get a deal if you play the right festival. And what I love that's happened in the last few years is, and I adore Sundance and I always will, is just that it is not the only place to launch a film. It is, uh, you know, and just like when your film gets to a place where you might have a theatrical release, if your film's shot in San Francisco, play New York, LA, and San Francisco. Then your opening weekend numbers are gonna be good. You know, if you're, you know, fight opening in other cities that opening weekend, because every you know, we all know that's what they talk about. So it's sort of like, it's your per screen average in those things. And it, it, maybe just play LA 
and, uh, and San Francisco or just New York in there, whichever makes sense. You know, if I shoot a film in Minneapolis, it's opening weekend is going to be probably New York and Minneapolis. And, um, you know, so, um, you know, there's, uh, I forgot why I got down that road, but the, um, the, I expected a lot more of these brain cramps in the, where I start down a track and I say, can you remind me what we were talking about? The, um, uh, but the, uh, but when it comes down to festivals, it's like, it's the one festival that really works for you. Um, you know, if you, and again, if your film did shoot, you know, you just know this as well. If your film shot in Texas, you know that South by has a Texas spotlight, you know, um, you may not get into Sundance or Tribeca, but there's your odds of getting into South by are you know, if you've made a good film are, are increased because they've made that commitment. In Provincetown, if you're queer, if it's a queer film, if it's a New, New England film, you know, your odds are a little more increased, um, you know, because festivals are looking for things that their audiences are interested in, you know, pro and you'll find that out. Filmmakers don't do this enough. If you just look at the last two to three years of their programming, was there a film that even remotely looks like mine? Whether that's in a broad sense, your genre, horror, or it's that thing of like a no-name film, um, you know, from out, you know, and just, and then ask your question, ask some deeper questions. Okay, that no-name film, did it shoot in that state? Did it shoot in that region? Was it, you know, was there a Provincetown connection? You know, there's, you know, we can save ourselves as filmmakers a lot of uh, submission fees if we just sort of uh, do a little research. Well, and just to redirect us just for the tail end of this question is, but let's say we get into the film festival and we do attend or we don't attend regardless of attendance, how else can we support your film festival? Yeah, thanks. It's just, I mean, um, uh, social media, um, uh, promoting, being an ambassador for the festival. Um, you know, a lot, Province is not alone in this. I mean, there are a lot of film festivals where, film, where we say, we hear from all, so many filmmakers were their favorite, you know? Um, and it's sort of like, you know what? I don't care if you say you have 10 favorites, whoever's asking at the time, but it's like, but you know, they, it comes up. I know those filmmakers are saying that they may say the same thing about, they may say, Oh, Mill Valley is my favorite too. But you know, it's, uh, but it's, um, uh, so being an ambassador for the festival, um, you know, we're a family. I don't know if every festival does this, but if you've get, gotten into our festival, we'll waive a submission fee for the rest of your life. You're an alumni, you know, it's, um, you know, you know, we're, we're, we're in the, we're in the career building business. You know, Drake Dormus had made some films that didn't get in anywhere, but we programmed them. You know, I love them. I, I, I'm, you know, I'm wrong as often as, you know, I brought up the Bradley Cooper example and now I'm bringing up Drake and it sounds like, I, oh, he's a genius. He's an Oracle, but I'm not, I make a lot of mistakes, but with Drake, I was like, I see something here and I want to support it. And I had to, and I fought, you know, my programming team. Cause they were like, I don't like this film. And I was like, yeah, but you know what? I think his next film is going to be awesome. And it's sort of like, and I want to be in the business. I want to be, I want him to know that we were with him from the beginning. Um, you know, and, you know, and I, and I, and I'm passionate about it and I'll stand up in front of an audience and say why. So, so loyalty is another thing that comes into this. Um, you know, you know, if it's a queer film, for instance, I sometimes get a little peeved if they, you know, we're a June festival that, uh, you know, most of the queer festivals uh, happen in the summer. And there are some that, that have prioritized those at launch in, in, you know, uh, one of those great festivals and they'll come a full year later and say, will you play my film? And I'd be like, yeah, technically we're in the same, we, your film is, is in a year cycle, but you know what? You didn't prioritize us the first time around. And, you know, and, you know, so next film, maybe let's talk about the next film, you know, also, you know, if you look at our lineup, 
uh, Provincetown, we are in June, but almost every single film we play is the second or third screening in the U.S. of that film. It is, uh, you know, uh, Bachelorette is an example that Leslie Headland did, which played at Sundance. Um, it went into some recuts after that. They chose to bring it back, bring, to introduce the new cut to the world at Provincetown. You know, it's not my favorite film in the world by a long shot, uh, but Madonna directed, you know, um, uh, what was that film? I can't remember the name of it. Oh, the, uh, the remake one? The... Not W.E., but what was the one before it? Is that W.E.? The one that I just keep seeing an image of a beach. I just keep seeing a woman on the It wasn't swept away. But it was um, anyway. We had the, the seat. No, sorry, that's very no. different. Okay, I know. Never mind. But we had, but we had the North American premiere of it, and Madonna because Madonna was just sort of like, "Hey, Provincetown, great." You know, we had the North American premiere of the Beguiled. We were in the year we honored Sofia Coppola. If you look at the, you know some of these titles, you might see in our lineup, and you might think, ah, like every other festival, they just programmed it like everybody else did. You know what? We had it second. We had it third. We were, you know, and it's not just because we're snobs and we can be, but it's, but, um, but it's because the distributors value us and they wanted it reintroduced then. And they also value our audience and they, 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 you know, our audience in Provincetown, the, a, a mostly queer world comes to Provincetown and then takes word of mouth back to a lot of different metropolitan areas. You know, it's different from us, from some cities, you know, they're great festivals like Atlanta where I don't know if that's true for them. I think for the most part, they've got an enormous Metro area that also distributors value, but I think that might be the core of their audience is a primarily Atlanta audience, but we've got sort of a, you know, um, you know, this audience from around the entire country. But if you look at the lineup, you'll see that. And, 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 uh, and so when you go back to the example I brought up before of somebody that might've played the queer festivals the summer prior, it's like, none of our films are as old as yours that we're, that we're putting into our festival. So it's nothing personal, but also it kind of is because, you know, why weren't you thinking of us? I just, I just reeled off a whole bunch of names of people that prioritize us. Why didn't you, you know, um, so I'm not, we don't penalize anybody for that, but it's a little lesson that I think a lot of filmmakers have to understand is just, uh, you know, there is a festival season from Sundance basically to Provincetown for American independent film, uh, where it, where it's, it's really taking its first big shot at, um, for many filmmakers, uh, of, of, of introducing themselves to the marketplace. Uh, there are a lot of great fall festivals, obviously between Sundance, uh, between Toronto and Sundance that do that as well. And getting back to the last first, where we started with this is that you don't need to, this cycle thing is the way it's been. When your film's done, find the first festival that works for you. But, uh, and, and, you know, but the thing that gets me is when a filmmaker launches their film at a festival in April or May, and then it's just like, why is nobody else taking my film? Well, um, the June festivals, our deadlines to submit are February. So you've, you, you know, you may have premiered in April or May, but now the next films festivals for you are likely in the fall. So, uh, you know, there's a way to shoot yourself in the foot, you know, about this. Um, uh, you know, I made a short film and I was just sort of recently, and I was just like, and I finished like at that time where you're like, oh, if I rush a cut, I can get a rough cut to Sundance. And what I tell everybody is don't do that. You know, just you want them to see your finished, fully formed vision. You don't want them to see the idea of a film. You want them to see the full film. So when your film and, you, and when you spend your lifetime making a film and a lot of money, maybe yours, maybe somebody else's, don't rush through post. It's sort of like take care of your baby before you, you put it into, into, the, into this brutal world where everybody's going to start judging it about whether it's pretty or not. So it's sort of like, you know, 
take care of your baby. And then once it's done, don't work on these deadlines, work on your work on figure out a way to create an own de your own deadline as an artist, which is just, which is just like the film's done when it's a hundred percent finished. And then that's the first time you show it to a festival. So I have a question that goes back to something that you said a little while ago, but you're talking about filmmakers, especially short filmmakers being a little difficult to work <laughs> with or, you know, veering on the, the asshole side of things. But the question <laughs> is, what shouldn't a filmmaker do when they get into a festival? Like what should they yeah. avoid doing that makes them fall to that category? Happily, it's rare. But I will say, you know, the, the one thing is like, you know, film festivals are nonprofits and they're stretched thin with, with, with not much staff. Um, I'm, you know, great filmmakers come out of making short films, but there is, there, there can be prioritizing within festivals to take care of honorees, uh, spotlight features, and then, you know, and, and features with big, you know, Danny Boyles at the festival and stuff like this. And that stretches um, uh, a thin staff thin. And then if you have a, fil a short filmmaker saying, um, asking for a lot, you know, uh, uh, you know where, where's this, where's that? Answer my question now, um, I've got a deadline. Yes, you do, and I understand that. But, you know, just, we have to put ourselves in each other's, in, in each other's foot, uh, you know, place, uh, shoes. And I like to think that, you know, even, you know, please take this, uh, I, I love short filmmakers and I, and, and I value them and I do put myself there and I try to do everything I can for them. But, you know, it's, uh, you, you know, we're, we're a tiny festival with maybe as many as, you know, 100 and, 150 to 200 industry guests, including filmmakers, honorees, press, and all this other stuff that are all asking me a question on the same day. So it's just like, have a, so for when you get in, have a little bit of perspective that yes, you matter, your career is great. And hopefully you are the next great big deal. And everybody will be, you know, we're, we're backing you because we believe in you. You're in the festival. We believe in you. Uh, we're here for you. We just may not answer your email this minute. So um, that's one question. That's one thing. Um, but it's, you know, when I say don't be an asshole, it's really about features. Uh, you know, I've, I've, I've encountered it from both, you know, from every single stripe of just somebody who, you know, just, just, um, you know, it's all about them. And um, I get that. Um, I, I totally, I totally get that. It's um, what I like to remind a filmmaker in a different, under a different conversation is like, uh, you've got a dream. You've got a dream to make a film. Your investor has a dream. Your cinematographer has a dream. Your gaffer has a dream. Your actor has a dream. It's sort of like, you know, um, don't get so wrapped up in yours, you forget that. It's sort of like, it's, um, it's and this festival has a dream. And these, and, and these programmers have dreams. And it's sort of like, we're all trying to get somewhere, right? We're all trying to do something and make and make something of our, you know of our lives and and say something that that we hope has some sort of value in this culture, and um, you know and and uh, and you know I mean I just dealt with a filmmaker we're in the middle of COVID and a COVID spike on the, on the film and all they're talking about is how they can get more extras on set and I'm just like take a step back for a second okay this is we're you know this is the you're, you're too wrapped up. You're, you're, you're in that place, that horrible hole that we sometimes get in as creators where nothing in this world exists except your film. And it's sort of like, you know, and, and those are the people that I would say become difficult at a film festival where they can't take a step back and be a person again. They are, they are really in that mode of just being a, Mark, a, a P.T. Barnum for their film. 
and, and they can't shut it off. And, every, and so as a result, everything they need is a priority. Nobody else's needs matter. Uh, there's, there isn't this understanding that the person you're talking to is getting the same question from 50 other people. It's just, you know what, I matter. My thing matters and I need an answer now. That's the thing, that's, if I can bring it back down, it's not, it's not that we, you know, the person's unpleasant or the person I just don't like. It's more just like, you know, I like to hang out with people that, um, you know, that, that are a little well-rounded about this and have some perspective about their lives and their careers and their films. Um, that's not to say you shouldn't fight for your film, promote your film as much as you can, but you know, in the middle of a pandemic, realize there's a pandemic. I wish we had seven hours with you, Andrew. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's like 1 million more questions I wanna ask, but uh, yeah, I think we have to wrap this up. <laughs> It's fun. It's fun talking. Th thanks for, uh, you know, I, I present myself as a know-it-all. I'm a horror. I say, I sometimes say I should create a little business card that says horrible know-it-all. Um, I'm wrong as often as I'm right. Everything I've said has an exception. This is, this is my reality, my truth, the way that I've come to this. And I've encountered exceptions to everything that I've said. I've always told filmmakers play to the odds. And it's sort of like, you know, and there, and so it's understanding how the marketplace works and the last thing I'll say is like, you know, for instance, if you're making a documentary, where do you want it to live? Because a documentary that you see on History Channel, on POV, on HBO, and on Netflix uh, about the same topic are presented differently. And, and uh, by, I, I watched a beautiful film by a filmmaker in some of my, one of my early days at, at Film North. And they were like, and I said, it's a little HBO, it's a little PBS, it's a little this. And he said, well, then one of those stations should want it. And I said, no, PBS wants something that's 100% PBS. HBO wants something that's 100% HBO. It's sort of like it, this little bit of that, little bit of this, somebody should take it, is not the way to make a film. Um, so it's, uh, you know, you really do have to know the marketplace and understand where your film lives and who your audience is before you shoot a frame. Um, so, um, you know, and then, and, and then that's, so, and, and when I look at that, I'm like, yeah, there are exceptions to every rule I just said there. There's something, you'll see something on Netflix. It's a little bit of this, a little bit of that, but maybe chances are Spike Lee's the executive producer or something like that. So it's just, um, you know, there's, when you, when you bring up an exception as the reason your film's going to work, dig a little deeper and you might see why that film was an exception. You know, it's Sundance in a documentary when you see a film that's all talking heads. Yeah. That might be the blacklist, you know, and there's a, you know, which is also the trans list and the, and, you know, and all these other, the, the, all these lists that they make. And there's a reason that that's in Sundance, but you know, the general documentary with talking heads isn't getting into Sundance, you know? And if you bring up and you said, yeah, but that film, it's like, well, understand why that film was the exception, you know? So, um, that's just my way of saying when you play to the odds, understand the, the, the industry, which in, in the film festivals are an industry. And everything I've said today comes from a person who has worked exclusively with an independent film that needs film festivals to get um, attention. Um, there are films that are made and are sold directly to Netflix that, are, that everything I said today doesn't apply to. So uh, I think we should get to our last final five questions. Uh, Liz, I'll take the first one. What's the first film you ever made and how do you feel about it? <laughs> <now>? uh, 
It's a horrible, it's a horrible film. I did not, uh, you know, I didn't come out till after college and I spent, and I spent a few years working in the industry here, mostly closeted as well before I went to New York and made a film. So it's cringy fil coming out films that I made at NYU that I thought were secret and nobody could understand. They were sort of coded, and, you know, and it's like, uh, you know, yeah. Um, that, that it's, it's a little cringy. The first feature I produced World in Time Enough, I'm so proud of it, but I remember, you know, we made it in 94. And in 99, Strand said, hey, there's this new thing called a DVD and let's make a commentary. And the, my producing partner and the director got together and watched the film and, and to, in order to do the commentary. And after watching it, the director turned to me and it was like, I hate this film. And I was like, and, and I was like, no, I don't know how it's aged, but the thing is, it's like, you know, I think as filmmakers, we all see the film we could have done and the mistakes. We don't see the film. We see, we see the way we wish we had ha handled things that day on the set, the way that we, you know, the, the, you know, the, 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 the footage we didn't have in the, in the editing room and all that kind of stuff. I have a, so that said, I don't hate any of my past films, but my first film, you know, my first film that did well, was a little short called No Thanks, Not Sure, Yes, Please. I don't know why I thought that was a great title, but the, um, but it won a lot of awards. It played a lot of festivals. Mike Lee uh, programmed it for a, a one-hour special on, on ITV Network. And I've got this great quote from Mike Lee about how funny I am and everything. And I taught it at McAllister. And I was just like, I don't want to show anybody this. It was shot on film, you know, in 16 millimeter film, transferred badly to video, you know. And it's sort of like, you know, so it's that video that kind of moves when you look at it. It immediately looks at you when you're watching it. And it's like it immediately looks like, oh my God, am I in the 1920s? You know, how old are you? You know, um, and and I, um, you know, but I showed it to these kids and they were and they laughed. And I was like, oh my God, it's not bad. But in my head, I had built it up to be this thing that was just like, oh, you, you know, when I worked, when we had, a, when I would, when I would get actors attached to my um, feature to get happy, they they invariably say, "Let me see that film," and I'd be like, "You're not gonna see it ever," <laughs> you know, um, you know. But that's um, so. Yeah, the long. I have I have to get shorter answers to your questions. The um, those that's that's my answer. Um, what's the best filmmaking advice you've ever received? Listen. And uh, uh, one director said to me, it's like, you know, that I don't know if I would do it this way, but on the set just said, everybody on the set is here because they're smart and is here because they're good. If you've got an idea, if you see something, tell me. And then he was just like, once. He was like, I will consider it. And if I don't do it, that means I didn't choose it, but don't keep bringing it up. So it's sort of like, you know, and, um, you know, and, and I think that that's, I think that's true. I do think that there should be a pipeline to the director, otherwise it gets chaotic, but, um, but you know, um, take it to the creative producer. Um, you know, I've been on set and I've seen things go sideways or crew members seen things go sideways and they know that they can bring it to me because I'm the quote unquote creative producer on the set. So they'll either, I, either it's something I saw or somebody will be like, Andrew, take a look over there. And then I'd be like, okay. And then I would go over to the producer, or to, the, to the lead producer, or to the director and say, this is what's going on. So that all falls under listen. And, and uh, you know, the other thing, I mean, what I tell people is just, is listen and be kind because people aren't kind enough. And, um, you know, and being kind gets you, um, you know, it's just like show up, be kind, show up on, you know, those sorts of things that um, it's strange, you know, getting into this business, simple things get you remembered. Showing up on time gets you remembered. Being kind gets you remembered. Thank you notes Listening get you remembered. Get you remembered. Yes. And if you get rejected by a film festival, don't say F you. 
in your, you know, or <laughs> as somebody said to me, I saw on Vimeo that you didn't watch the film. So you're just, so I guess you're just in the business of taking people's money. And I'm like, you know what? When you push your film from Vimeo to watch later, you don't get the notice. Or Apple you know? TV. Yeah. Exactly. So it's sort of like, I did watch your film and I, now I, I, and I'm happy to have a conversation with you about it. But it's sort of like, you know, I, I did have, you know, I've had people, you know, that's, that's under, so that's under the be kind. There's a lot of things <laughs> under be kind. Uh, but simple things, you know what, take your, and it all comes back to being, to humanity. It all comes back to being just a decent person that you want to hang around with and be on set. When I worked with David Lynch, I was one of the new people on the set. He traveled with the same crew, as much of the same crew as he could time after time after time. It's a family. Look at this business as a family. If you get into Provincetown once, you're part of our family. You know, it's sort of like, you know, so, you know, if you're the crazy uncle, you know, who tweets conspiracy theories, we might not invite you to Thanksgiving next year. So, um, do, do you have a goal as a filmmaker? Uh, you know, I don't know anymore. I don't. There's a change I want to see in the industry and I want to be a part of it. So, you know, my goal is just to do meaningful work and impact things in a positive way. Personally, you know, I, I was really tied up in the idea of success in my life would be directing a feature. And I really hope that happens, but I don't want, I've re recently allowed myself to not be so tied to that as, as a goal that makes me a success or happy. It was tough. I mean, that was an emotional, I did, I had a life coach and we talked about things and I just bringing up the idea that it might not happen. It was really hard, but, but um, if you have a GoFundMe account right now, I'll give you money. Just launch <laughs> it right now. And we will all give you money to make this movie. <laughs> You have a fiscal sponsorship that I set up, but um, uh, through Film North. So, but the, but thank you. That's very kind of you. And uh, you know, raising money is the thing. It's just the thing. It's like you know, I, I've had great, great, great people believe in my film and be around them. And it's just been my lot in life to have people that have those people be people who don't have big bank accounts or access to people that do. But they've all done wonderful films, great stuff. I'm proud to have them on the team. But you know, I've lacked I've lacked the person who's got the who's got the the connection to the money. Um, if you could go back in time, what's one piece of advice you'd give yourself? Write more. I, I'm not as disciplined as I should be, you know, and back in the nineties when I had the time, I should have been writing more. And the final question is making movies hard. <laughs> <laughs> it is impossible. It is, it is hard. It's hard. Making movies is hard. Uh, it doesn't have to be so hard. I will put out there. Um, uh, and I think that we, um, I think we have to, uh, you know, when I do talk to a, a, a filmmaker, for instance, I brought up the two characters, one location thing. I'm just like, when you're on set, you know, when you've got two days to make your film, you know, say you're, you know, um, do you want to be racing from location to location? Uh, or do you want to have time to explore uh, characters and maybe let your actors do a couple takes that make them feel happy? And that's part of why it doesn't have to be so hard. Take a look at your script a, a bunch of times, but definitely a pass that goes like, how hard am I making my day? And does it have to be that hard? Do I need that special effect? Do I need that car crash? 
Do I, you know, there are these deceptive eighths of a pages that, um, you know, that, that are gonna, you know, you're gonna spend all day doing it. Do you want eight page days? You know, I, I recently talked to a filmmaker that, that had to drastically reduce their, their budget. And this has to do with Get Happy as well, which is like when I wanted to reduce the budget, I did do a pass. I went from 105 pages to 91. And um, I, had a, I just recently talked to a filmmaker that went from a much higher budget to, you know, a, to still a, a six figure budget. Uh, and I was like, what's the rewrite? And they were like, no rewrite. And I was like, okay, you gotta, you, you, you gotta, you got, you, you got eight page days. You know, you're, you can't, you can't do that. It's sort of like, um, you know, page length is something that you got to take a look at. And that's something where it goes into there. Can I combine these two care? And I'm not saying compromises, but you know, the bottom of the, the end of the day is, is that you, you, you marshal all these resources, you spend your life and you've got emotional and physical energy that you're putting into this film, maybe all of your life savings. Do you want to be spending your time on set, not with your actors? Do you want to be spending your time in a car going between location to location? Do you want to be worried every day that you're going to make your day? You know, those are the things where it's sort of like, what can I do to make my script a little more manageable without compromising my vision? Because you know what? Your script should probably be 80, 90 pages. You should probably, you know, for the most part, it should mostly be people walking and talking. Uh, it should try to be natural light. This is all if you're trying to make a film for 50,000, 100,000, 500,000, whatever, you know, you know, again, it's sort of like, you know, that's where Get Happy isn't. You know, and I was just like, you know, and I know that, okay, maybe we can do it on $500,000, but that's going to be my reality every day on the set. And the movie I get at the end of the day is not going to be one I'm happy with. It's just not. You got to know and be able to make that tough decision. I was worried that I had jinxed our conversation, but clearly I haven't because this <laughs> has been um, really wonderful, Andrew, and educational. And I don't know. I just love talking to you. Um, where can people find you if they want to reach out to you and bug you and ask you for things and take all of your time and resources and energy? I am easily found. Uh, well, not so much because Andrew Peterson is a somewhat common name, uh, particularly in Minnesota. I have a twin brother, Tim, and in our high school yearbook, between Andrew and Tim in the yearbook were eight other Petersons. <laughs> so, um, and in Minnesota, when I go somewhere, like when I go to the pet store, I have a corgi, and, and they say like, last name, I say Peterson, the first name, Andrew, address or street you live on. I say the street and they'll be like address on that street. You know, it's like, so yeah. So you can't really uh, Facebook Andrew Peterson and expect to find me really easily. And there's a Christian art rock artist named Andrew Peterson who gets all the press right now. The, um, but, uh, but film North, which is myfilmnorth.org. Uh, we may be we're, 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 we have our eye on the filmnorth.org uh, URL, which we think we're going to get this year. But right Ooh. for the time being, we are myfilmnorth.org. And, uh, and then Provincetown, Provincetown Film Festival, which is uh, provincetownfilm.org. Uh, I'm easily traced through both of those sites. Amazing. Thank you for listening. And thanks to Andrew Peterson for making this episode happen. You can check out our website at makingmoviesishard.com where you can find links to the things we talked about in this episode. If you want to get in contact with us, you can send an email to podcast at makingmoviesishard.com or find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Podcast. I am RFB on Twitter and Instagram. Liz, where are you? I'm um, at Liz Minichel on Twitter, my preferred means of communication and Liz Minichel film on Instagram. Did you hit 2000 yet? No, I'm at 1953. Oh my God, people, <laughs> you're killing Liz over here. She needs 47 more of you. Just want to get that's there. Not, that's not that many. Come on. Um, also, if you like the show, you could tell a friend about it. Just tell a friend. You could tweet them, and email them. 
You could uh, call them on the phone if you do those things, um, just to help us get the word out. But you can also, even more better than that, leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher, or just a rating and uh, tell people about the show that way. Uh, thanks to editor Ulrich Purcell, most likely. <laughs> unless, uh, unless Nick Bell responds to my email, he offered to edit for us, calling him out. Um, and then I said, yeah, sure. Can you get one done by Monday? And then I heard crickets. But crickets, yes. <laughs> so maybe next time. Um, but yeah, thanks everyone to live for, for listening to the show and all your support. We're almost at episode 300, which is like crazy. What are we going to do for 300, Liz? Are we just oh, gonna do shit, we got to do something. Who, um, the fam most famous person you know? Let's get the most famous person you know on the show. You don't even know any famous people? I I don't. I think Sasha Pearl Raver is famous. I, I know her. She's like the host of Fox News. I mean, Fox movie download or whatever. Um, oh, cool. She's really cool. Who else do I know? I could uh, text Val Kilmer and he'll ignore my text message. Oh, that's some. That's I mean, I mean, he's no Sasha Pearl Raver, but like, still cool, still cool. I yeah, I I think I I still have his phone number, but that would be rude to do. You can't do that. That's not that's not cool, people. Um, can't just text people after not seeing them for five years, ten years, eight years. People do it. It's Hollywood. Um, we'll find someone. We'll find someone really exciting. Right. <laughs> So we'll find a good person to surprise people with. Boo! <laughs> like that. Maybe Sasha. She's cool. Okay. I like her a lot. That's good. All right, guys. Next week. Thanks for listening, and thanks to Andrew Pat Peterson. I was going to call him Patterson. It's not Patterson. Thanks for listening, and thanks to Andrew Peterson for making... Oh, my God. Ulrich, you don't have to read everything verbatim for making this episode. <laughs> Sorry, that's my fault. Uh, that's okay.